So I want to begin with a question like I love to do so often because I want to get you to think. Not just here to give you information, but I want your minds to be working. I want you to consider things. I'm going to start with an easy question. What is our most basic daily need? What is our fundamental need for life? No, it's not Wi-Fi or cell service. And I'll give you a hint. Jesus talked about living water when he met the woman at the well in John chapter 4. So now we find ourselves in John chapter 6. The whole theme of chapter 6 is what Jesus told us to go to the Father with. Our need for daily bread. And that bread should ultimately point us beyond just our mere physical needs. So now is where I offend your Western sensitivities. Because everything beyond food and water is just a luxury. The only real needs we have are food and water. Our Savior lived on this earth with no other possessions but his daily food and water, which he went to the Lord for. Some of that makes you guys uncomfortable because I need this and I need that. I'm not, sure, I'm not saying we shouldn't have things. I'm not saying that a car or a cell phone or a new fad is something that is bad in and of itself. But do we need them? Most of our lives we go through replacing our wants and making them needs. I need this thing to be happy. I need this thing to be fulfilled. And when we upgrade our wants to needs, we now have a perspective that places us under other things that can become our master. Because the reality is we pursue what we think we need. And so that's really important to think about the things that we really need. Because we pursue things that are perceived needs to us. Because in reality, beyond food and water, we don't need anything else to survive. And this, again, providentially, it comes in perfect timing with our guys group tonight. I'm going to plug our guys group. Uh, any men who want to join us, you should. We're going to meet at my house at, at 7. And we're going through a series on heart idols. And again, providentially, we're going through materialism tonight. I did not plan this on the sermon series schedule. But what materialism is, is it is any material thing that takes your heart away from the Lord. It is anything that is not of God that tugs at your affections and it becomes an idol in your heart. And I know it's only guys that struggle with, with materialism. So, you know, I mean, that's something that's so pervasive in our culture. And it so perfectly fits into a passage where Jesus tells us to seek the things that do not perish. There's another term that Jesus uses in this passage, and he talks about work. This is another thing that is kind of perceived need. That we think that we need to work so we can gain all these other things, but when at the very minimum, why do people say they go to work? They go to work so we can put food on the table. At its core we, we go to work for food. We know that's the, the most fundamental thing that we need. And so the most honest sign for that guy standing on the corner, that's the most basic transaction is we'll work for food. And that's at the core of it. We're working for food. But what are we really working toward? We're going to get into that more this morning. Because Jesus always points people to what is more, most important. Because most people get caught up in their possessions, their job, all these things that are going on on the surface. But what are people really seeking after? Because when they were seeking after Jesus for physical food, he points them to a deeper need, which is what we all have. And Jesus last week taught us 
that you can trust him for your physical needs. And he's going to continue to lay out in the rest of chapter 6 that you can trust him for your spiritual needs. Jesus understands there's a tension in this world. There's the already not yet tension of living in this age and needing food and needing water and needing clothes on our back and needing to provide for our families, but also living for the age to come. Because in reality, we live in this age, but we live for the age to come. And every believer should feel that tension as we go about our daily lives. And so how do we keep all the material things of this world into proper perspective? Because the reality is, eventually all this stuff we think we need, all our food, all our clothes, it's going to perish. It's going to wear out. Maybe not Twinkies, they might outlive us. Or that can of beans that's in the back of the cupboard that you haven't touched in 15 years, it may outlive you. But it too will fade away. What are the things that do not fade away and what are we seeking? And that's what I want you to meditate on today and this week. What are we seeking? So I'm going to give us a quick recap of where we were last week and tell you a little bit about chapter 6 because we're going to be in chapter 6 for the next four weeks. It is a rich chapter and it's great and we're going to spend some time there. So last week, this this famous miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And this is a picture of saying, I know your material needs and I'm going to give you what you need. I know that you're hungry. I'll give you your food and I'm going to give you more than you could ever imagine. We're going to have 12 barrels left over, 12 bushels of food left over. And that number should ring a bell to many of us. Because when Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God, he came to usher in a new spiritual Israel. And that 12 should remind us that the 12 tribes became the 12 apostles, became the foundation of the new Israel. And so Jesus' miracle of turning the bread in the, in the fish and multiplying it and having 12 left over should give us images of, wait, there's a new abundant kingdom. There's a new Israel. And Jesus is bringing it in. We are to rejoice that God's kingdom has come. And so that kind of sets the foundation for the rest of of chapter 6. And we transition from chapter 5 into chapter 6, where in chapter 5, Jesus tells us he's the source of life. Everything comes from me. Everything is under my authority. But now in chapter 6, he's the sustainer of life. He is the bread that continues to feed us and sustain us. He's all we need to live. We're going to spend a lot of time on that theme because Jesus spent a lot of time on it in chapter 6. So I want you to open your Bibles to chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, and because a strong wind was blowing, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. And on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. But that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for our Savior, who came not just to walk as we walk and be tempted as we were tempted, but to die as we never could and live in a way that we never deserved. And give us life and sustain us forever. Lord, help us to hunger after righteousness. Help us to thirst for things that quench our souls, not just satisfy our desires. Help us to be people who follow after you because of you, not just for what you can give us. Lord, I just pray that you get all the glory and the honor and the praise this morning. I just pray that you expose the idols of our heart. I pray that you make us uncomfortable in the things where we find our value that take us away from you. Pray that you make us miserable in our sin so that we may run to you and fall at the feet of your throne of grace. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for mercy on us sinners. Thank you for the good news that there is reconciliation and restoration in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so first we find ourselves in this very famous account of Jesus walking in the water. So famous, the little basilisk lizard that runs across the water, he's probably more known as the Jesus lizard than he is the basilisk lizard. It's so ingrained into our, our, our culture, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Because you should know this story, but there are a lot of implications from it. So just a couple situational things I want to make you aware of, and we'll, we'll move through this story. First, when he says in verse 16, uh, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. That sea is Galilee. Now, if you don't know much about the Judean countryside, there's this landlocked sea called Galilee. And on Galilee, there are many cities, and it's surrounded by mountains and valleys and marshes. It's not an easy place to get around. So what they do is they have ferries that go across the Sea of Galilee back and forth. And so it would have been common for people to move across the, the, the Sea of Galilee and um, to visit family on the other side, to do business on the other side, to go to the other side for the day and then come back. So this would have happened a lot. And we see Capernaum being kind of a home base for Jesus and his ministry. They, him and the disciples spent a lot of time there. When they go to rest and to get away from the toil of ministry, they go to Capernaum. They, they go to get away, and that's kind of their launching point where they go out. And so here's where we find ourselves. He's on the other side, and he sends the disciples over. Now, we don't get that detail here, but the account is also uh, in Mark 6 and in Matthew chapter 14. And so I'm going to read Matthew 14. So you can turn there in your Bibles. Keep your finger on um, John chapter 6. But one of the details in Mark 6 that, that's really helpful is Mark tells us that this is right after Jesus sent the disciples out. And he, he sent them out to do marvelous things in the name of Christ. And they're wearied from the work. But now these crowds are following Jesus. So the disciples need rest. And so Jesus, part of his reasoning is sending them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee so they can rest. And as we're going to see in Matthew, Jesus is going to go up like he does very often on a mountain to pray. So we're going to read this passage in Matthew, pull a few details out of here, and then jump back into John. So Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, 
He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And he said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. A couple details here. Uh, one, Jesus dismissed the crowd. And so the disciples go off. We're going to get some more details in, in John. And Jesus goes up to pray. And, and so the scene we get here on the Sea of Galilee is that there's mountains that overlook this sea. And the sea is probably uh, seven miles wide at its widest point. And so if you're on a mountain, you can see there's a storm over the lake. So Jesus is praying, and then the fourth watch of the night would have been like 3 to 6 a.m. I don't know about you, but there's no way I could start praying in the evening and still be praying at 3 to 6 a.m. Uh, I've been knocked out by that. But Jesus is awake, and Jesus sees that his disciples are in trouble, and, and he goes to them. He seeks out his disciples. The ones he calls, he cares for, and he goes to on the sea in the middle of the night. And we get this story here of Peter coming to him in the boat. We're not going to go into that too much, but I love Peter's confession at the end. Because when they see Jesus walking in the water, and Peter coming out to him, and then when Jesus gets in the boat, the storm calms, and in verse 33, those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. We don't have to be there. We don't have to be in the boat with them to hear this and worship him. We don't have to see him walk on the water to say, you are the Son of God. When we read this account that many of us are so familiar with, it should cause us in awe and wonder to say, you are the son of God. You walk on the water, you calm the seas and worship him. This is what it should drive our hearts to do. But we know, first of all, comes this most common of human emotions, fear. There's a reason why this is the most common command in all of Scripture. Because we live in a fallen world and everything's screwed up and there's a lot to be afraid of. And if you let it, you could be anxious all of the time. We're fearful people. We fear losing jobs. We fear someone might say something to us that'll hurt our feelings. We're afraid we might say something to someone else that'll hurt their feelings. We're afraid that if we don't get this phone call, then all of our world's going to fall apart. We fear things all of the time. But one of the things that Jesus does intentionally and what he does here with the disciples, he knew the storm was coming. He knew that they were going out into the boat. He didn't stop them before they got into the storm. Where did he, where did he come to them? In the middle of the storm. And so they had to realize that while the waves are beating up against them and they are scared, that they need saving. And that it is all the more sweeter when he comes to them in the middle of the storm. They wouldn't have appreciated it if he said, hey, I'm going to save you from a storm that you'll never see. But he comes and rescues them in the middle of the storm. And he does with us many times in our lives, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of all the things in life that just get us worried. He comes to us. And we have to get a little taste of our own frailty to recognize how much we need the Lord. And he comes with the most comforting words anyone will ever hear. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. Savior comes to you and says, it is I, do not be afraid, you can believe him. 
And this is his way of building faith in the disciples. Because last week, he showed them that you can trust me to provide your physical needs. This is just a few hours earlier. I can provide baskets upon baskets of food. Trust me. It is I. Do not be afraid. I have your physical needs. Now he's teaching them to trust him in their fears. This is not a great picture of the Christian life. I will provide for your needs and I will be with you in your fears. This is what should mark the life of a believer. Every time we fear something that we think we need, we know that the Lord loves us. We are more valuable than the flowers of the field. He provides for them. And he also knows when we're afraid. He knows when we're in the middle of that lake on a boat and we're rocking with with no oars and no direction and we don't know what's going to happen. Our Savior is not any further from us than he was from the disciples. And that should comfort us to know that he is interceding for us to the Father like he was for the disciples. And he comes to them on the water. And I just want to challenge us. What if we remember these words from Jesus when we're worried about a job? Fear not, I'm with you. It is I, do not fear. What if we remember these words of Jesus when we're afraid about the hurricanes, which the news will obviously tell us are going to come in the next couple months? What if we remember the words of Jesus when we're worried about a sickness, a surgery? What if we remember the words of Jesus when we're worried about an election? What if we remember the words of Jesus? I am with you. Fear not. What should we be afraid of? That's easier said than done. We are fearful people. And most importantly, when we are burdened with our own sin, and we are burdened with the fear of death, Jesus says, it is I, fear not. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Fear not, for it is finished. Trust in me. You have nothing else to need. I am with you to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Fear not. Whatever you need to fear, sin or death, it was on the cross. The words that he spoke to the disciples on the lake mean so much more to us this side of the cross. Because we see Jesus' mission in its fullness, in its fulfillment on the cross. And he makes us look forward to its completion one day when he returns again. It's so easy to forget Jesus' power. Oh, how I wish we could be like children when they see this for the first time. See, Jesus walks on water. This amazement and wonderment that in the midst of the storm, in the midst of a sea where it makes no sense to the human mind, a child can see this and wonder and just say, God, you are amazing. Jesus, you are amazing. And for a child... It's easy. I've heard stories of child children being scared in a storm. Like, why don't we just pray? And us confident adults will squash the faith that the children have. But the simplicity of a child is how we need to come to Christ. If Jesus can stop that storm, can he stop the storm outside or the storm that I am feeling going on in my own life? And shame on us when we get too callous and too mature for such a simple faith that calls on the Lord who comes to us in the storm and brings us to the shore. Because Jesus walked on water, and that's really amazing. You know, we're in a culture that loves superheroes. And we love people that can do amazing things. We love people that can fly and fight and do feats of human strength and move things with their mind. 
And we'll pay millions of dollars to buy the uh, memorabilia and go, go to the movies and all those things are, are fun. But we're obsessed with fictional characters. And Jesus did things that are far more amazing than what they did. And if Hollywood didn't hate Jesus so much, he'd make the perfect superhero. And his greatest superpower of all was he defeated the greatest enemy, even greater than Thanos. He defeated death. He rose from the grave and said, all death has lost its power. All death has lost its sting. What greater power do you need than that? Sadly, many people who call themselves Christians are more concerned with what Avengers are going to come back from the death. Sorry if I spoiled that for you. <laughs> than, that, than that Jesus came back from the dead. How much time do we sit contemplating that our Savior came back from the dead for us? See, when he multiplied bread and he walked in the water, he came back from the grave. Pop culture has our minds going in a hundred different directions. A thing that is garbage compared to what Christ has. And I'm still going to see the movies. They're, but it's, it's nothing compared to who Christ is. Look at verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was on land to which they were going. Jesus multiplied the bread, walks on water, and he moves boats. Just to, just to throw that in there, uh, we didn't even row the last, the last mile. Jesus took care of that. Jesus' power, even down to the smallest detail, he brings them safely to shore after he delivers them from the storm. So this middle section here, uh, 22 through 25, I'm just going to read it, give you a couple details. We're going to spend most of our time in verse 27. So on the next day, the crowd that had remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the crowds are no fools. Like I remember yesterday, uh, we got a free meal. And so if someone's going to feed me today and uh, I'm going to see what, what he's going to do next. Because saw, they saw the signs before. They were fed uh, the, in, in the morning. And so Jesus dispersed them, but they didn't go too far. And they're also perceptive enough to say, all right, you aren't going to get anything past me. I saw there was one boat here. And the disciples went this way. And Jesus went that way. Where's Jesus? And so as would have happened on the Sea of Galilee, there, there would have been ferries or boats that, that came by. And so these guys are catching every boat Uber that they can to get to the other side of the sea. And they say, all right, where is Jesus? We have to find him. But again, as always, Jesus knows their hearts. Look at verse 26. They ask him, um, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, and we've said this many times, whenever he says truly, truly, that means pay attention. That means lean forward because I've got something you really need to hear here. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Last week, we saw their motivation was more of the signs. This week, it's, it's more food. Either way, it's the wrong motivation. Jesus is saying, you should be thinking about your souls, but you're only thinking about your stomachs. How many people should be thinking about their souls and they're only thinking about their stomachs? Verse 27. But do not work for the food that perishes, 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Uh, you wouldn't know this reading the English, but in the Hebrew, or this, this is written in Greek, but in the Hebrew tradition, there's something called a mashal, M-A-S-H-A-L. Uh, it's a Hebrew literary tool. And it's basically a paradoxical saying. Uh, it's kind of, it has a riddle type rhythm with kind of a, a perplexing meaning. Uh, and, and so look at the, the rhythm here. And do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man gives you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And this would have had more of, um, you know, being spoken originally probably in Aramaic would have, would have probably had a, a rhythmic tone to it. And this is, this is important because each one of these lines is significant. We're going to work through this and um, wrap up in verse 28 and 29 after that. So Jesus is saying, do not work for the food that perishes. I mean, we know that real food perishes, and it perishes quickly. If you get the good stuff, it's gone in a couple days. And you can put all of your energy toward things that are going to perish. But there's another alternative. But before we get there, I want to ask us a question. Because this is a real question for us to take uh, an examination of our own lives. How much of our time is spent thinking about, obsessing over, chasing after, consuming, and then repeating things that perish? Need a moment? How much of our time is spent chasing after, obsessing over, consuming, and then repeating for things that perish? Probably a lot of our time. The new phone, the new car, whatever fad is out now. But the reality is when we seek after these things, they become our master. They get all of our attention. We seek them and then ultimately they become our God. And we don't like to hear that. And the things are not bad in and of themselves. But when you make them the end, When all of your energy and efforts are toward things that are perishing, what are you saying to the God who does not perish and who gives gives gifts that do not perish? This is where Jesus is right now. Speaking of things that perish, I want to address this. um, Because I I think one of, and we we talk about this a a lot uh, among us here, I think one of the, the things that drives the hearts of God's people way more than anything is television. Sorry, guys, I'm going to touch on another Western sensitivity here, especially the news. What is more perishing than the newest thing to be afraid of every day? Every week, there's something new. In in our pre-service prayer, we read from Matthew chapter 6. Tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. In the news, we have 24 hours of troubles, 24 hours of things for us to be worried about. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Tomorrow, we'll have something else to be worried about. So many Christians are caught up in this hamster wheel of what show is coming out next or what next thing should I be, I, I be worried about. These things are perishing. You don't think our Savior knows what's going on in the world? But our eyes are glued to the things that are perishing. And we get so invested in things that are going to be gone tomorrow. This hamster wheel of anxiety. I'm going to get off that soapbox, but it's true. Because when Jesus says, fear not, I am with you, It also means with whatever else is going on in the world that we are fretting about right now. So on the flip side of that, how much of our effort is put toward things that do not perish? 
things that only the Son of Man can give. Because this is important here. For the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. We saw a couple weeks ago that the title Son of Man is that of divine judge. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. And he tells them, I'm coming back. So when we see in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says that your Father in heaven who sees in secret, he will reward you, those are eternal rewards. Because when Jesus comes back, he's coming to judge the wicked to everlasting punishment in hell. And he's coming to judge the righteous and to give them rewards that last forever. The Son of Man gives gifts that do not perish. And they are nothing that you can see here. What are the things that we're working toward? Um, One of the things I want to mention, a lot of you may know, um, but Hunter and Meredith, who've been here uh, serving for the last six, seven months, um, who Hunter's been leading music for us. Um, Hunter and I were in seminary together. Uh, Hunter's had a a call in his life for the last few years, a desire to be in a place where um, the gospel is needed and where church plants are are needed. And so during this interim time, uh, Hunter and Meredith decided to come here. And I, I love their heart to say, I want to be a part of what God is doing here, even if for a short while. I want to invest in the things of the kingdom. And Hunter's gotten an opportunity to go up to New England, a place where he wanted to go, and uh, to be put into a program to revitalize or plant churches in an area that desperately needs them. And even though it's, it, it's, it's bittersweet, it should be a celebration. And I just want to encourage you guys. One of the things that Sheree and I talk about so often is that being in ministry, you invest in people who come for a season and then they go. We see this pattern with, with, with Paul in the New Testament where he spent time with people. He loved them. He, he cried with them. He taught with them. Some of them knowing he would never see them again, but he was in, invest, investing in eternal riches. And we're so glad that Hunter and Meredith came here to invest in eternal things. And the time that you've invested in them don't worry about what you've, you, you've lost. You've not lost anything because you've invested in things that matter for eternity. And even though it's a brief time, we get to see that in the body. and People will come and go. And it's great to see Daniel and Bethany come back. And we invested in them and now they're in South Carolina. But they are, are, are growing and we invest in things that matter for eternity. So uh, Hunter and Meredith will be here for a few more weeks. And I just want to encourage us as the body to encourage them. To pray for them. And if the Lord lays it on your heart to support them. Because they're going to be raising funds. This is a, a, um, a, a program that, that they're going to have to pay for themselves for the first nine months. And then hopefully uh, the Lord will provide a church for them to revitalize. So uh, they'll be here a few more weeks. Encourage them. And as a church we'll continue and commit to, 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 to praying for them and encouraging them as well. And I know a lot of us um, are going to, to, to miss you guys. And I think I got 50-50 that we're going to miss the bass and Hunter's um, sense of humor. So that, that's, that's about what the uh, poll is at right, right now. But um, no, in, in, all, in, all, in all seriousness, it, it's such a joy to say, you know what? We're serving here for five days or, or five years, and we're doing it for the kingdom of God and the glory of God. And I, I know that they're going to continue to serve wherever they are. And so continue to lift them up in, in, in prayer. And those are the things that we as a body are going to invest in. The things that matter for eternity, whether we can see fruit right now or not, whether it matters to our body right now or not. And that's a real question for us. Which thing would you rather spend time investing in? 
that which matters for eternity, where God gives you glory and God exalts you for being a faithful servant or the thing where, the thing where people exalt you now and you get your fleshly desires satisfied now. That's the tension we face every day as believers. And there's a great text in Isaiah 55 that we read earlier, but I want to walk back through it because there are so many parallels and it's so helpful. So keep your finger in John 6 and turn to Isaiah 55 for me. This is the exact same thing that Jesus is getting at here. I want to read slowly. I want you to meditate on these words. And then I'm going to walk back through it. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. And a beautiful picture of God's grace. A spiritual thirst. Things that we can't buy. You can't work on your own that are given to those who are thirsty, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and it is given freely, wine and milk. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? It's exactly what Jesus is saying. Don't work for things that perish. Work for things that will not perish. Why do you spend money on things that can't satisfy you? Why do you work hard and give to things that are just going to leave you disappointed and are just going to wear out and die? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. If you guys love food half as much as I do, the rich food of God should excite you. The things of God are rich food. What he gives us without money, without price is the best wine. It's the richest milk and honey. Steak or insert whatever you want to there. (laughs) Incline your ear. Come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. By coming to the Lord. By hearing. There is an everlasting covenant that can never be shaken, never be taken away. The promise he made to David is is fulfilled through Christ who came through the line of David. And everyone who trusts in Christ is a member of that eternal covenant, and it will never be taken away. And it is a covenant of abundance, of food and riches and feasting forever. And your soul will live. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the people, still talking about David and the one who would come in his line. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. We are that nation. We've been talking about this in Romans. We are the Israel that shouldn't have been Israel. We are the spiritual Israel, a nation that had no identity. But through Christ, we have an everlasting covenant. He is the Holy One of Israel. He has glorified you. And then they answer the question, what should we be seeking? Is here in verse 6. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is repentance and forgiveness. This is the gospel 700 years before Christ. Turn to the Lord. Seek him. He will forgive and he will restore and he will give to you abundantly. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't go after the stuff that, that, that perishes. I'm giving you real food. I'm giving you real drink. I'm giving you an everlasting covenant and inheritance in me. Turn from your wickedness. Repent. Be reconciled to God the Father. And work for the food that goes to eternal life. For on him, back in John now, for on him, God the Father has set his seal. We don't understand this in our culture because we use, we use signatures and things like that. But in that culture, they use a seal. Each monarch, each royal uh, person, whether they were a governor or a king, they each had an individual seal. And there was only one. It was carved out to their specific specifications, probably a little piece of metal or stone that would be pressed on wax. And when a message was sent, when a decree went out, it was sealed by the ring of the king. Many of these actually still even survive to this day. You can go and see them in museums around the world. But the seal of God the Father is the Son. The seal of God the Father is God the Son. How do we know we can trust in these things? Because of the Son. How do we know these things are true? Because God the Father sent the Son to confirm everything that the prophets have been looking forward to. He set his seal on it. And his seal went to the cross so that we could be sealed in the Father and sent the Holy Spirit so that we would never stray again. Of course, it's never good enough for the Jews, right? <laughs> then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus told you, okay, work for things that, that, that don't perish. They're, they're kind of going in the right direction. What should, we, what should we do to be doing the works of God? Uh, and not to nerd out too much here, but in the Greek, this is a present subjunctive, which basically means, what should we be doing? What might we be doing all the time? What should we continue to do to be doing the works of God? This is an act of, okay, what do I need to keep doing in myself? This is a temptation among the Jews, and this is a temptation among us. What do I need to keep doing? What is required of me over and over and over again? This is a common expectation. I know I need to keep doing something. What do I need to do to keep making myself righteous in the sight of God? What do I need to keep doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' response is perfect. Of course it is. Look at his response in verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Jesus took their works, plural. They wanted to do many things, and he made it singular. This is the work there is one work. What is that work? That you believe in him who he has sent. Most people say, no, it's too easy. It can't be just, just, just believe. I've got to do something, right? Every religion on the planet says, I have to do something right. I got to keep doing something. What did Jesus say? The one work. Replace all of your works with one. Believe in the one who the Father sent. This is the answer to the same uh, Jews when, when Peter preached the gospel to them in Acts chapter 2. What do we need to do to be saved? Same answer. Repent and believe. 
Repent and believe. Keep on believing. What you need to do is keep on believing. Have faith. Because faith is the work of God. How do we do the work of God? It is faith. Faith in Christ. Not works in our own strength. It's the whole purpose of the book of Romans. You are justified by faith. That's why I've been going through Romans. Paul says over and over and over again, you can't work enough to fulfill the law. You have to trust in the one who has fulfilled it. So some of you may be asking, well, didn't he just say work for the food that lasts for eternal life? That's a good question. But let me explain something here. The difference between faith and works. And this is a longer talk, and I'm going to try to get it as succinct as I can. There are no works that you can accomplish to earn faith. There are no works you can accomplish before faith that will ever please God. Hebrews 11.6 tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. We don't work for our faith. The one work is to believe in Christ. But then what about good works? We work out of our faith. Once we have faith in Christ, everything we do is to the glory of God. By faith in Christ, we can work for things that matter for eternity. We are not justified by our works. We are not made righteous, declared righteous before God by our works. But our faith is confirmed by our works. Because we care about things for eternity. Because eternity has been placed inside of us by the Holy Spirit. And that is the work of God. Trust in the Son. Know that he has sent the Spirit to teach you and guide you and preserve you to the very end. And along the way, do things that matter for the kingdom. Invest in things that do not pass away. You want to please God? You want to do the works of God? Believe in the Son. And everything you do, do it in His name and for His kingdom. Amen? So, as we'll see next week, Jews are a little more thick-headed than that. They're still seeking for more signs. Spoiler alert, we will get there next week. Um, so, to close, I want to leave you with a few commands of Jesus. Commands we find in this passage. Four commands I want you to just meditate on as you think about this concept. Number one, fear not. Those who Jesus seeks and saves, he also seeks and saves from life storms. Far too often people will trust him for eternity, but they won't trust him with their bank account or they won't trust him with what's going on today or tomorrow. Fear not, it is I. Our Savior lives. No one can snatch you out of his hand. No one can separate you from his love. Fear not, no matter what the world tells you. Number two, don't work for the things that are perishing. Yes, we have to work for things that are perishing, literally speaking. But spiritually speaking, don't put all your efforts and your energies in the things that will never last. Don't look to things to be functional saviors for you that are just going to die and wither away. What do we do instead? We believe. Don't work for things that perish. Believe in the one who will never perish, and in him we will never perish. Believe in the Son. And then that way, you can work for things that will never perish. But whatever you do out of belief in the Son glorifies the Father, and it endures into eternal life. And with that, when Christ comes or he brings us home, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have done the works of God by believing in me and doing it in my name. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father. We have no right to come before you. We have no right to call you Father. We are still trying to work and earn your love. We still think that the cross is not enough. Lord, help us to rest in you. Help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Help us to put our faith in him because he is your seal. The fulfillment of all that has been promised. The the fulfillment of all that is required. Help us to trust in him. Help us to not fear in the storms of this life. Help us to rest in your love and your provision for us. That you are our source of life and you are our sustainer of life. Help us to trust in you and work out of our faith. Help us to be people who are joyful in what we do and work for things that matter for the kingdom. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We serve you. Let everything we do be to glorify and honor your name. In the name of our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.